The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. Deputy level trade talks resume in Washington as Vice President Mike Pence tells CNBC he hopes for a sweeping deal, but vows the U.S. will no longer yield to China. The era of economic surrender is over. And, and for too long, one administration after another, Republican and Democrat administrations were willing to accept um, extraordinary disadvantages to American workers and American jobs in the name of trade with China. Billionaire investor Leon Cooperman tells CNBC the Fed is, quote, screwing the savers by cutting interest rates and says Donald Trump is wrong to attack the central bank. The president's doing a lot of damage with all this assault of the Fed. You know, I wrote down last uh, yesterday when the Fed cut rates, I said consumer confidence is up, retail sales are strong, employment is strong, Consumer net worth is at record levels. The economy is growing at trend. Uh, Sterling hitting a two-month high after EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker says a Brexit deal is possible. And he's open to a solution to replace the Irish backstop. German leaders are hammering out the final details of a comprehensive climate package as they aim to drum up 40 billion euros in green investments amid strict fiscal rules. Oh, happy Friday to all of you as well. Very interesting Friday. In fact, I'm very interested always to see what uh, the, the great powers that put together this show, the producers, have for our headlines. And I think they've encapsulated four out of the five key issues in the headlines as well. So well done them. The fifth being uh, about what's going on in the world of the oil at the moment, the, the, the geopolitical tensions uh, between Iran uh, and indeed the United States and others as well. Because we had the Fed in there. We had, is there going to be some form of fiscal stimulus via green initiatives? initiatives out of Europe, out of Germany as well. We had trade concerns in there and we had what looks like a very encouraging pause uh, in Brexit antagonism between the EU and the UK. So you've got all these issues bubbling around at the moment. But this, what is interesting is the net net is this over my shoulder. Have a look at the S&P. You don't often get a 0.00 when all of these issues are clear and present. And the other very interesting thing, which I'd normally say to you at this point, is, well, yeah, look below the surface. There's some really big moves in individual sectors. Actually, six out of ten sectors were in positive territory. And there weren't actually great extremes between the best performing and the worst performing. Around about 1% covers the entire extreme of those ten sectors as well. So actually, the market's gone for a very calm phase when actually it could well be in serious volatility at the moment. And it's the absence of that serious volatility which has got me thinking, quite a lot as well because let's face it the market didn't necessarily get what it wanted from the fed this week as well and i think the market has behaved beautifully incredibly calm fashion despite the fact that it could easily 
easily have thrown its toys out of the pram. We could easily be looking at headlines now and all the scribes are saying, well, it's obvious why the Dow's down 4% this week. It's down because of the Federal Reserve not giving the market the stimulus it wanted as well. But the market's not doing that, is it? The market's taking on board that actually we might just be in uh, for only 60 basis points of cuts now by the end of 2020. Maybe not even that if you look at some of the dissenters like Rosengren uh, on the upside as well. So very interesting pause in the market. But is it a trap? Is the fact that the VIX is down 45% year to date and trading around the 14 mark, is it a trap for investors ahead of what, as I say it again, you've got pretty much a six week period coming up, the last couple of weeks of September uh, and the four weeks of October where the market has historically exhibited extreme volatility. Which brings me to my last point at the wall as well. Now, you can have a look at the dollar crosses while I'm doing this. And that is the fact this is a wonderful opportunity to look at all those brilliant, brilliant investors that we've been speaking to the last 24 hours in New York uh, and trying to find some alpha in this market as well. So we'll bring you a lot of those comments for people looking for individual situations, sectors, stocks as well, uh, which basically means to me it's a great opportunity to basically put aside those big five issues I mentioned at the top and look at individual stocks. And the best cliche of them all, it is a market of stocks, not a stock market. Here's the dollar yuan, 708. Let's move on to the WTI price and Brent. Again, some really big movement this week, big events going on, but again, fairly calm markets here. 1% high in WTI. Gold, again, looks like it's magnetically stuck to around about 1500. You've had a huge $300 rally from the lows this year. And now it seems, well, a lot of people want to own a bit of gold, but uh, will they still have the same impetus now it's stopped moving to the upside? Because I've got a sneaky suspicion, and I think some of you out there as well, is all these gold bugs, these new gold bugs, that is, they don't actually like gold. They just like a momentum trade. That's my sneaky suspicion. I may be wrong. Uh, Asian markets, let's have a look at those. We have the Nikkei up 0.22 of 1%. Uh, aside from that, the ASX 200. It's nice for the Australians to find something to be happy about because they could have a very tough weekend on the rugby, couldn't they? Just want to get that one in there because it's the Rugby World Cup as well in Japan. Absolutely phenomenal as well. Opening calls for European markets. I'll just have a very quick look at the FTSE 73.21. Zetradax uh, seen down 21 points. CAC seen down 10. FTSE MIB down 41 as well. But yes, I did mention the Rugby World Cup. I'll say it a couple of times. It's going to be very exciting. Karen, you're going to be glued to your box all weekend. Yes, apparently. Five or six different teams could potentially win this time round. The New Zealand coach was saying it was a very open competition. Yeah, yeah. So the Aussies could be a chance. Yeah, of course they can. Only teasing. It's going to be a fantastic weekend, though, isn't it? I'm yes. very excited about that. Yes, for those people of, the, of that inclination, you could yes. actually just sit in front of the telly and watch seven games of Yes, rugby. you could. Yes, you could. Uh, deputy trade officials from the US and China will continue talks today after face-to-face -face negotiations resumed for the first time in two months. Discussions have reportedly focused heavily on agriculture, and Washington has demanded Beijing increase buying of U.S. soybeans, according to Reuters. China's intellectual property protections are also under the spotlight. The discussions are set to lay the groundwork for October's high-level meeting. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence told CNBC at the Delivering Alpha conference that President Trump is defending U.S. economic interests. When it comes to China, it's a whole different ballgame. We run $500 billion trade deficits with China. And we estimate that we lose almost as much in intellectual property theft every single year. I mean, I mean what, what the president is doing with China is defending the American economy, defending America's interests. The era of economic surrender is over. 
And, and for too long, one administration after another, Republican and Democrat administrations were willing to accept um, extraordinary disadvantages to American workers and American jobs in the name of trade with China. And those days are over. Ah, those days are over, according to Mike Pence. So um, where's the deal? Where's the deal, guys? We were told that we were coming into a phase where we've got a very significant meeting at a high level, and this was going to lead to progress. We get here, and what do we find out? These are now deputy-level talks, and everybody seems to be walking back the prospect of an imminent deal. Not only Mike Pence with this tough language, but Larry Kudlow, of course, suggesting it's possible we'll get a deal, but it's also possible we won't get a deal. So actually, it doesn't take us very further along, as far as I can see. Meanwhile, we continue to measure the consequences of this for economies and worth just reminding our audience this morning we do have most Asian markets a little higher because we've seen another move in interest rates from the Chinese to help manage their economy. You debate how do we or don't have, we have a deal in, in the works, but equally it would be possible for a Trump administration to manage the message enough where you have no real signals that there's a deal imminent and then eventually you get this pop on markets, a very strong reaction when a trade deal happens. I mean, that is, is perfectly logical as well. So what do you do at this point as an investor? Well, we've got people saying there's a trade deal potentially in the works. Others are saying you now need to live with the uncertainty of this type of market for a long time, potentially up to 10 years, not just past the presidential election, but much longer. So as an investor, I think you've just got to step back and uh, step away from the noise of a trade deal. And I think that's very hard to do because we know central bank policy is also linked to what may happen on the trade environment. And just to Steve's point, you're talking about market volatility. There are direct links being made by some of the investors about the market volatility because they think the next six weeks might be a tipping point for the global economy and US economy. And some of this was effectively flagged up by Powell as well, pointing to the next six weeks as being fairly telling. So at this point, I think you then also say, can we have a situation where US and China can actively avoid not signing on the dotted line on a trade deal because if the US economy, global economy turns lower, turns south and we get a recession, can we actually get through this with no trade deal and just rely purely on central banks this time around? Um, just one step back, if I may, and just going on to the acrimony that very often accompanies the formation of initial trade pact agreements, deals as well. You know, when you look at the Brexit situations well and the British are potentially looking at chlorinated chicken or other issues they're not sure about with giving more access to US companies access to Britain in a post Brexit world. My point here is there is a conventional wisdom which is pervading that says if we have a trade deal between the United States and, and uh, China everything is going to be rosy in the garden it's going to be fantastic for everyone. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Oh, I think there are enough recession, for instance. Well, there are enough arguments on both sides to say it may well suit certain U.S. corporations. It may well sort, suit um, the kind of having a, a more peaceful relationship, trans-Pacific as well. But will it actually benefit the key components of the U.S. economy? Let us not forget this is a, an economy which is around 65 to 70 percent surrounding the U.S. consumer. If we have more American goods going to China and less Chinese goods ultimately going to America because you want to get to some form of balance on trade, which obviously is a mythical figure, but let's go with that anyway as well. That means costs for US consumers would potentially go up. So whilst many US corporations would have a sigh of relief 
for a trade deal, is it actually good for the US economy and for US voters, which I think is a very important point? Uh, yes and yes. There you go. I'll just put it out there. We have seen at least 200 years of Ricardian competitive advantage played out through globalization in various waves. The benefits of that, even if people don't on a minute-by-minute -minute basis notice them, observe them, feel them, think it's important, the benefits of that have been clear for everybody to see. Right. We, we live in a more peaceful world, yes. by and large, than we did 200 years ago. We live in a world where we have, at least in the, in the Western world, mm. um, probably every comfort we could care for. In fact, so many comforts and so much junk in our garages and in our kitchens and so on and so forth, that actually we, we probably don't need any more junk from anywhere. And when you look at the breakdown of trade, we talk a lot about China's lead in manufactured goods. We don't spend uh, as much time talking about America's lead in provision of global services. You know, all these companies that provide right. auditing right. services, they provide financial services, the world's leading global investment banks and so on, all of these are American by and large, yes. and those are conveniently forgotten when we talk about the terms of trade and the, the terms of trade. interlinking of the global sure. economy. Yeah. So I, I think unambiguously a trade deal that moves us back to a form ah. of competitive and cooperative development has to be a good thing. Well, will it move us back to the situation we had beforehand, where actually you saw the free flow of goods back and forth, certainly from uh, American goods to China, uh, with certain restrictions, Chinese goods to the US with less restrictions, but will these extra restrictions, which are a form of protectionism in many ways, isn't it, if you add in a whole host of regulations and forced transactions, is that the, the, the global free trade nirvana that you were just exhibiting? I'd go back to the point around services. I mean, if you think about the operating environment for many of these big American companies on the ground in the mainland market, it's been fairly open access, very deep relationships that have been created over many, many years. That changed with this increased rhetoric of the trade war. And I think just returning to business as usual for some of those companies would be seen as positive and perhaps positive for the US economy and perhaps positive for world trade. Now, I'll go back to my original point. How long can we all wait it out for a trade resolution? And I dare say now with this pushback on negative rates and how much further central bank policy can go into the creative or innovative side, you've got to say that the run rate now for a protracted trade war it's running out of room. We can't rely on central banks just to keep okay. on cutting rates and getting creative. Two more points which I, I stuck in there as well. is One, I, I alluded to American voters who voted for Mr. Trump in large numbers because they thought he would redress um, the demise of large parts of the US economy, traditional parts, manufacturing, industrial. Will any of that change on the back of a trade deal. And the second point I raised as well is, um, would it be the corporations and stock market investors who benefit or would it be the wider economy? Because the two aren't necessarily running in tandem. Uh, it's a failure of politics, isn't it? Let's face and it. And I think you earlier this week were talking about the, the diminished importance or what should be the diminished importance uh, of the theory of trickle down and how it actually really works in real life. Yeah, because it hasn't worked. And the reality is if, if governments, if we pay our taxes, for key services to be provided by the state, then they should be provided. And we hand over our children to the education system and we say, what we want is you to give us back a 
you know, a, we're, we're talking in very mercantile terms mm. here, but a skilled participant in the evolving workforce and a and a robust individual who can grow and be successful in their own lives with whatever the future brings for the global um, economy. And unfortunately, people have been left behind and they have not had the skills update they need. And those people who are now voting for pe- uh, politicians who are populist who, and who they feel can change their lives anywhere in the world, world, in the world yeah. are doing so because they've been left behind financially. But they've also and unfortunately, been lied the actions, to as well. Well, the actions, yes, of course, but politicians and lying, um, they fit well together in a sentence, don't they? But the actions of the central banks have only perpetuated the economic impoverishment of many of those people. Again, let me go back to another point. You raised these amazing American service companies, and and that is undeniable. They are amazing service companies. Amazon is an amazing service company. Google is an amazing service company. But are they in creating the kind of mass employment that actually these people voted for that they want to see Mm. from Mr. Trump? Will these companies provide those, or will those <coughs> jobs be done by servers and algorithms? Well, you provoked another argument, I think, by by saying the society where the benefits are trickling down too. Because I mean, if you talk about tax structure and who the, who's actually getting the benefits and rewards out of this type of economy, it's been key shareholders mainly, key investors. It's not necessarily those at the bottom of the hierarchy, and that's a very different system. I think it's not central banks to blame for some of that activity, is it? Some of it's down to the, yes, the share. The shareholders, the company structures themselves, yes, the soul um, searching that needs to happen at the board level. No, it is. Um, if you look at where the inflation in wealth has happened, it's happened in anybody that owns financial assets. And the central banks have perpetuated that. Far from, far from creating uh, a, an improvement in the transmission to, mechanism, Labour has had a disastrous two decades. It has not participated not in the growing global wealth that we've seen. And by focusing on asset prices, central banks have only improved the return well, What happened for to the leadership in the boardroom where the, the shareholders, the chairman, the CEO, the CFO could decide to pay more to the employees and share some Which of that wealth? Which kind of brings us back to where Where's we came leadership? in and I was questioning and you unambiguously said yes and yes, I mean yes in a yes. Churchillian way, about the benefits of free trade. Well, hang on a second. The globalisation was led by that same country and that globalisation, as you both have clearly alluded to and quite correctly, has not benefited. No, we're not leaving it now, producer. You've got us down this road. We're going with this for one minute. But it hasn't benefited those people. This clarion of globalisation that has been led by the United States hasn't benefited those people. And you're saying we go back to something which will improve their lot? Well, we'll go back to what? No, no. you're sort of muddling things up here. I mean, the, I the point, don't think I am, The Jeffrey. point is this. Um, the Part of the reason that those people have not benefited is that they've not had skills appropriate to the shifting global economy. Um, how do you take someone who is doing a manual manufacturing job in the United States that's that's gone to China or another low-cost part of the world, how do you take that person and suddenly turn them into a programmer? It's very difficult, but if you have a government that is on its game and is in uh, working hand-in-glove with the education system to reskill people appropriately, then you can do these things over time. But I don't see that kind of political political engagement actually working at this point. And I don't see it 
you know, at some point we will get a reaction. You've had this. Look at the levelers. Go back through the history, the, the various waves of globalization. We've had all of this, where labor gets left behind, then you but, get a response, and then it catches up. But unfortunately, it's, it's a painful process. When the central banks come into the mix, though, when central banks lift interest rates and stop printing money, how does that mean that you suddenly get better education system? I'm not seeing the link. Well, of course, it's nothing to do with the central banks, what the education system looks like. But there's a failure of political leadership. Bank? We had a view back in the... You remember the whole uh, end, of, end of history? Mm. We had a view that if we engaged with countries like China and Russia and so on and so forth at a trade level, this was American policy, that ultimately we'd also see political changes we, in those we've countries. Go, we've got to guess after the break, apparently. Talking about right. 21st century we'll careers as well. Coming up on the show, Karen. Plenty ahead. Talks drag on into the night. A little like scorebox here. As the German government attempts to finalise a sweeping environmental package, those details coming away next. Signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation only retreat, returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back, everybody. German government officials have been holding marathon talks as they hammer out the last details of a sweeping new climate package. Chancellor Angela Merkel's coalition is expected to unveil a number of environmental policies later today, including new green energy investments and electric car subsidies. But Merkel also has to convince the fiscal hawks in the government that the 40 billion euro price tag is worth paying. Let's get to Annette then, who joins us from outside the Chancellery in Berlin. Um, Annette, just, just break down for us uh, with your guest how likely it is we are going to see significant announcements from this event. I don't want to go as far as saying that's a make or break moment for the Grand Coalition, but clearly they have to deliver because that's more or less their only big project now. And um, it is a test, a litmus test, if you want, uh, also to show that they actually really can work together and that they come up with like a credible plan going forward. Uh, I think they can't bow out of that whole thing now because there's so much pressure on them to really deliver. But what that all means also for the business side and how much it could cost and what it means for the economy. I'm now joined by Carsten Neuhoff, who's Director of Climate Policy at the German Institute for Economic Research. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so we were just saying they have a marathon session inside the Chancery. Uh, what do you think, like briefly, what they come up with? I think there are three elements that are particularly on the table. One is overall a climate change law to give clarity of what has to happen over the next years, make every minister responsible for actions on his sector to deliver the transformation towards a climate neutral future. Second, it is carbon pricing. So far, we don't have a carbon price on the transport and the building sector, making that a robust framework and incentive framework. And third, 
we do need infrastructure to make that change. So getting the framework for that infrastructure in place. Um, let's talk about the carbon pricing because the industry is clearly alarmed um, or the business sector is clearly alarmed. It could cost them millions or even billions in some um, surveys or research notes, which I've read. So what price tag do you think will be or is discussed and how bad will that be for business overall? So what is discussed is somewhere between 25 euro to 50 euro of a carbon price. But that would be uh, applied to the transport and the building sector because power and industry is largely covered already by the European emissions trading system. Um, do you think if you look at the cost for the economy, um, how big will that be in your view? I don't think it will be a big cost for the economy. What we aim to do is strengthen measures to deliver renewable energy and strengthen measures to make energy use more efficient. So energy efficiency is an investment. You invest today, that's investment cost, but then you save on either imported fuels or other energy in the future. So actually it is not really an economic cost, but it's almost a small stimulus package. Yeah, let's talk about this aspect of the whole thing, because clearly one could also argue that that whole climate change package could be seen as like a, a fiscal stimulus package. Do you agree? And how big could that be? I think overall it is inherently a stimulating investment strategy behind that. And the scale, we don't know yet. Some people talk around 40 billion but not even clear about what time frame. So I think we really have to wait off what will be decided today in terms of how much the incentives for thermal retrofit of buildings will be increased, how much um, will be provided for electromobility, and I think most importantly, how much more investment will go into public transport. Uh, could, talking about electromobility, because carbon emissions, are, at least here in Germany, they come for 20% from that sector, from the transportation and especially the car industry. Um, do you think it will be the big push for electromobility if the government was to implement a sweeping infrastructure um, policy? I think obviously charging structures are an important part for electromobility. My sense is that any of these changes do require step-by-step -step management. So there's one part of the decisions hopefully coming out of um, the cabinet today, but that is a policy that needs refinement and further implementation over the coming years. So there will be a big step, um, but it's one of many steps we have to go. And I think that's why the important signal here is, will the government make a clear choice and will they put in the governance framework such that we keep on allocating the responsibility for the transition to the line ministries. Um, just finally, um, one, one broader question about why is the government finally moving? Is it because of the grassroots movements we're seeing here on the ground with demonstrations? Or is it also because the business, want, business side want to, them to have a regulatory framework? I think it's really both sides. Today we have 500 demonstrations announced across Germany indicating the strong interest of the broader public and particularly the younger people that look at the signs and they do want to live in a future. Um, but at the same time you see industry 
if you look at the big three steel producers in Germany, all of them have now announced their low carbon strategy and signaled they need an investment framework, policy framework for that. And likewise, in the other sectors, the technology companies, they can move and they are moving, but the stronger the framework, the better the opportunities for them are in this context. And so that's why they look to the Chancellery. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We are all looking to the Chancellery. Right now, they are still inside the Chancellery and discussing about the final, or probably the details in that uh, document. They will then later on today, um, I think the time is 10 o'clock, um, discuss in this so-called Cabinet, Climate Cabinet, which is a selection of various ministries which would be affected by those changes. So the bottom line is it could be the big fiscal stimulus package everybody wants from Germany. The question is how to finance it, given that we have that institutionalized debt break. But there could be like flexible ways around it. For example, we could see that uh, idea from Altmaier to have a special fund for it, or we could also finance it via different vehicles. So um, the, the big question is whether they inside the Chancellery come up with a plan they want to offer. Uh, like a, a detailed plan they can agree on. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.